This episode of Green Biz 350 is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com. And this episode is also sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving innovative solutions together. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, voices of the 2020 class of 30 under 30. Dow aims to wrap up plastic waste. Stephen Ritz on how the pandemic sets the table for food justice. And Timberland steps into regenerative leather. There is something afoot this week on 350. It's June 26, 2020. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me as usual from Midland Park, New Jersey, it's Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Greetings, Joel. Happy Friday. Same to you. Uh, and what a week it's been. Uh, th- one, one phrase, three words, 30 under 30. Woo! <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's always a big thing for uh, on two levels. One, um, first of all, just the Herculean task that you, Heather, lead with the editorial team, the extended editorial team, probably 10 different people involved with researching, writing, editing, and not to mention selecting these. And then it's a big deal for the people who who made it. Um, you know, we're always I'm always impressed about, you know, just how important this is. You know, we think, oh, we named 30 people our silly little publication and put a thing up there. It's an art another, yet another article. And yet this can be a, not a life changer, but a career changer. And uh, we see that evidence of that and several of our, this is our fifth annual, and so several of the past four years who, who have used that and uh, to their advantage in some, some really wonderful ways. Yeah, I've, I've been very humbled by the response on social media. There have been some wonderful shares and comments and selfishly speaking, I love it because it helps me understand what might be coming and good ideas and new ideas and fresh thinking. And yeah, so it always gets me really pumped up when I'm reading about them and, and learn. I learn so much. And kudos to you uh, on the diversity part of that, Heather. I'm just, it's really heartening that we, we were able to cast that wide net around the world. And, and I think from uh, um, six or seven or eight countries or maybe more, and probably a dozen countries and five or six continents, it's just great to see the diversity of up-and-coming young professionals in sustainability uh, around the world, from business, government, nonprofit sector, and 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 some others. So, kudos to you on that. Thank you very much, and uh, for the listening audience, look for some news and information from the past thirty under thirties coming up um, next week on the site. 
And later on in this episode, we're going to have some of the voices of those 30 under 30 to listen what they have to say about uh, sustainability and, and other things. So we'll get to that right after the Week in Review. So let's start with a little entree here uh, about food, um, and specifically a piece written by Lauren Phipps, our director and senior analyst, The Circular Economy, around the role that chefs play in circular food systems that we ran this week, part of her weekly newsletter that runs every Friday, Circular Weekly. Um, I, this is a you know we think about farmers we think about big food companies uh, and the role that they play in regenerative and sustainable food systems we don't think much about chefs and and what they do not just in restaurants um, and that they serve for people who come to restaurants but actually the work they do outside of restaurants uh, in helping. Uh, gain appreciation for food, but also understanding cooking and and how food needs to work. And by and, and in doing so, promoting the kinds of food that that uh, are part of a sustainable food system. Mm-hmm. One of the, the reasons I really liked this story was I, I don't think I told you this. Uh, I've been testing recipes for a cookbook this this past few months. Uh, wow! Because I have some yeah, I have some eating considerations for migraines. And so there's a lot of foods that you shouldn't eat for inflammatory reasons. And the uh, in that book, um, the, the, the author has been doing a good job of taking an ingredient. So you make an ingredient and then it lasts several recipes, right? So that has really got me rethinking how I use what's in my refrigerator. So if I think something's going to go bad or soon, I look at ways of, of reincorporating it into some other cool recipe. I mean, it doesn't have, you don't have to eat the leftover. You can put the leftover into some cool new recipe. And what I love about this story is that chefs, I mean, if you think about like the celebrity chef movement and, and, and how much people respect people out in the, these great restaurants, this is such a, just a wonderful consumer advocacy tool. I mean, just to think about it, if, if these people are, are cooking in this way, why shouldn't we all? And um, they are, are looking at ingredients that are very accessible too. In most cases, they're not, you know, like these highly specialized things. They're things that are around us. They're things that are seasonal, and it just makes so much sense to me. This story, I thought, oh, of course, yes, yes, yes. So. And that's interesting about your your cookbook. I think anything that's around anti-inflammatory would also benefit people with uh, heart conditions, people with uh, arthritis, and, and and probably lots of other things. So uh, I look forward to uh, to seeing that. Uh, w- one of the things uh, that just made com- perfect sense here, and it sort of mim- mimics um, or mirrors what Michael Pollan, the, the renowned food journalist, uh, talks about, um, and this comes from South Africa's chef and writer Mogadi Itswing, if I said that correctly. He said, you know, uh, basically speak to your grandmother. The foods and cooking methods that she used can inform today's efforts to improve food systems. And and in fact, elders are a great resource to help communities relearn how to eat sustainably. Uh, that's great advice. Let's move on to another story from our very own Deanna Anderson about the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on re-commerce. So for those of you out there taking, taking notes, uh, as you may know, re-commerce has to do with how pro- people are buying reused things. It could be refurbished, it could be secondhand, it could be 
uh, any number of combinations. But as we've been following on the Greenbus site, there are a number of organizations popping up to create businesses out of this. And so she writes here about a couple of different ones. One is a, a company called OfferUp, which focuses on uh, baby and kid items. So anything from diapers and feeding tools to apparel or, or toys and so forth. Um, and the other company that she, she deals with is Back Market, which is uh, dealing with uh, electronics and so forth. And so both of these companies are experiencing a higher degree of interest as a result of the pandemic. Um, like the, the whole retail sector, they're a little bit uncertain about the future, but uh, they've, they've definitely seen a spike uh, as people, especially offer up as, a, as parents figure out how to to keep their children happy, keep them clothed and so forth without having to go out to a mall or maybe they can't even go to a mall. Uh, but it's just an interesting, uh, one of those, these, if you will, fallouts that we're going to see from the pandemic, it could completely change the character of how people think about e-commerce. Yeah, that's, it's certainly a, a great thing to be looking at during this uh, economic downturn. Uh, but the, I mean, there's, there's the issue of not going to stores, but you can do any kinds of all kinds of commerce, uh, you know, new commerce as well as re-commerce and buying anything you want online. But I think a lot of this has to do with just simply the lower cost of of used goods and how that used to be seen as as sort of not interesting and and maybe sort of déclassé to buy anything used at least for some people a lot of people have, have, have it's a normal part of how they shop but all of a sudden we're finding that this is just a lot more appeal to finding refurbished re, uh, repaired uh, upgraded uh, kinds of things and companies are finding that I think this is really the important part of why it's not just secondhand but it's now called re-commerce is that this is a chance for companies to sell something a second time whether it's their brand or or some other thing um, and so yeah these are great examples uh, you know I do wonder about the health impacts. I know there's the concerns mm -hmm. about buying somebody else's stuff during a mm -hmm. pandemic. Has it, has it been cleaned um, and uh, sanitized for your protection, as they say? Mm -hmm. uh, that is mm -hmm. an important part of this. But um, this is a great topic. And uh, uh, re-commerce is already on the move. We've been writing about it for uh, well over a year, going back to Yertle and some of the other companies that are helping companies like Eileen Fisher and REI and Patagonia uh, take back and then resell refurbished versions of their new products. Um, so yeah, this is this is only going to grow as we uh, both stay in and I'm sure come out of, of this. But let's move over to a different company that uh, has always uh, sort of been at the leadership. And this is also another Dion Anderson story. Um, also sort of in the circular vein, but not entirely. And this is ab about Timberland uh, investing in regenerative leather ranches. Um, and, you know, this is, uh, I think, really cutting edge in, uh, in terms of how do you make leather, uh, source leather in a way that is actually helping and restore the environment and, and sort of not taking on some of the environmental impacts that we typically associate with leather. Mm -hmm. This is actually kind of the, uh, the natural progression of a partnership that they announced with the Savory Institute. So um, Savory focuses on like grasslands and regenerative regeneration of grasslands, right? 
Um, and Timberland writ large, as you mentioned a moment ago, has, has all along been a leader in various um, sustainability measures. And this pulls them into the agricultural part of it far more deeply than before. Um, and in, in it, I actually haven't heard of a regenerative agriculture venture, if you will, or, or program focused on the, the apparel, like the, 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 the use of cattle as, as obviously the, the source of this apparel, of this leather. Um, it's, it's mostly focused on the ag, but why not? I mean, this just makes all sorts of sense. Um, if you're going to, if you're focused on, on those, that animal, I, and we need to get the apparel industry, the fashion industry in general, far more sustainable. This just makes all sorts of sense to me. And there has been this leather working group uh, that's been been looking at this that uh, a number of companies, I think it's out of the UK, uh, where um, uh, setting standards about what, you know, how do we improve the environmental stewardship of leather overall, whether we talk about regenerative or any number of other inputs uh, that that are involved with producing leather, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm excited about this. I know you know some people will say, well, the best leather is the one that's left on the cow, um, yes. uh, but uh, you know, assuming that people will still eat meat for some time, and therefore cows will uh, have to die, and uh, the leather, you know, how you process leather, there's a lot of uh, impacts in making leather beyond the cow itself and the inputs for the cow feed and stuff. Uh, so uh, that's what this is about. And I, I, I look forward to uh, seeing this in the marketplace and seeing if we really uh, can uh, transform the leather market. I, I have a feeling this is just the beginning of, of what's going to eventually become the standard for how leather is produced. Yeah, especially when you consider that LDWG, the, the group you just mentioned, also includes Adidas, Eileen Fisher, and of course, uh, Timberland's parent company, Yeah. Uh, lots more to come on leather. Hi, my name is Matt Pinopio. I am a program manager on the energy and sustainable operations team at Amazon. I think Amazon is in a unique position to really make um, lasting change because of its scale. Right out of college, I was working in the public sector. I was working for a municipality and doing uh, working on water. And then after that, I, I worked in consulting and you know also helping public agencies you know with environmental compliance. And I recognized you know from those three years of work that I wasn't making the the wide scale change that I had hoped to achieve when I when I was studying in school. Businesses and corporations have the buying power to make lasting change beyond just operations. And I saw that they had, you know, massive uh, profits that could really change the way, um, change, you know, carbon markets, renewable energy markets. And so I thought that, you know, working in corporate sustainability would be the ultimate path to really make that change beyond the public and uh, consulting sectors. Hi, my name is Daphne Sanchez. I am the Executive Director of Canada Communities Consulting. We are a New York City Minority and Women Benefit Corporation that advocates for strategic energy equity solutions for New Yorkers. 
that are often not represented in the energy field. So I am a native New Yorker. My family has been here for, gosh, I want to say like maybe three or four generations. I'm um, Puerto Rican and Costa Rican. I'm a very big Latina mix. And my family and I have all been raised in public housing in the city of New York, which is the New York City Public Housing Authority. When you're raised in public housing, you always kind of only see the, the, the building blocks that you're in and the community that you've engaged. And growing up, I've never really understood the dynamics of like, why is it that my family has spent so many generations inside of public housing? Um, how can we kind of break that chain and, and really thinking about why is it important to help the community around us? So I grew up with this question that every time I was going to school, I knew people would like say, oh, my God, you live in public housing? Ew. Um, and, and that sense of embarrassment to kind of have government subsidy. And I started working in like community engagement and thinking, you know, this is not okay. We really should not be um, ostracizing each other. We really should try to help each other and understanding how can we move to, to forward together. So I started working um, with a councilwoman. Her name was Councilwoman Jalosa Ferreras, and she was amazing. Um, she was doing a lot of different community advocacy work in Queens and helping her constituents really improving the built environment. And it was from that internship program um, that I decided I wanted to study sustainability. Um, I really wanted to study that intersection of housing and a safer, cleaner, better living environment for communities that are marginalized. So at the same time as I was studying this, my parents are actually the first people in my family to buy a house um, and to leave public housing. And it was, I remember the day, like, our whole family got together. We were so excited. You know, one of us finally are able to make that leap and leave public housing, which is, you know, the dream that people are always constantly talking about. But Within, I want to say, less than a year, Hurricane Sandy hit. Um, and we were actually in the house. And it was, I was working on my senior project for my undergrad for sustainability and, like, civil engineering. And I remember hearing the sound of water, like, when the toilet is running. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, my dad left the toilet running again. And I'm like, Dad, you know, you left the toilet running my mother, who is Costa Rican, she was raised here and in Costa Rica. She automatically knew that sound. And she was like, Daphne, pick up all your stuff. This is, you know, this is flood. A flood is coming. And I'm like, Mommy, crazy. Like, this is New York City. <laughs> like, there is no, there is no such thing as a flood happening in this city. Um, again, being the native New Yorker that I am, I'm thinking, <laughs> New York, nothing ever happens to New York City because they're so great. Um, and thankfully, I listened to my mom. I picked up my dog, and I ran out of my room. And it was at the moment that my mom, like, rushed me out of the room. I saw through the window this big wall of brown water. Um, and the moment I walked past the door bridge, my windows broke and my floors broke, and brown water was just gushing everywhere. It was at that specific 
time that I froze. I, I walked out of the room, my mother closed the door, and I just froze there with my dog. And I was like, oh, my God, this is real. This is really going to happen. So we sat on the roof for about eight hours, and um, a, a, a family friend of ours was able to contact the FDNY, and we actually were rescued by boat. I'm, like, standing in my bare feet with my dog in my bag and my laptop for my stupid senior thesis that I was, like, worried about. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm studying this. And I could not, like, I froze. I froze immediately. I couldn't do anything for my parents, for myself, for my community. And what good is studying about sustainability and, like, trying to help folks with climate change if there is no action? Um, and so the, the days after that, the island was quarantined and what was amazing to see, and I was, and I was still kind of in shock. It took me about two weeks to actually get back, go back to like school, um, was that the engineering professors at my school were helping my family with structural analysis. They were um, connecting us with other engineers. The engineers that we got connected to, we we shared those resources with um, Occupy Staten Island. And it was really nice to kind of see that interconnectionness of, like, technical folks helping social service folks. And I realized at that moment, like, I have technical skills and I understand the social dilemmas that our communities are facing. This is what I want to do. I want to make sure that no one else has to experience what we've experienced. And so I went down a path of working in resiliency and efficiency, specifically focused on how do we ensure that affordable housing residents, public housing residents, first-time homeowners, low-income uh, low co-ops are resilient. Um, they are sustainable without having to sacrifice the preservation of, their, of the affordability, without having them sacrifice their lives um, in the next natural disaster. Hi, uh, my name is Mespa Sabur. I'm one of the co-founders of a company called CircleWise. We're based uh, in the Netherlands and we are developing an open protocol for sustainability and transparency in global supply chains. I think one of the first things that uh, came up uh, with initial research like years ago uh, was that within the the, the plastics um, supply chain or in the industry and products containing plastics uh, there is so much variety when it comes to like additives and, and hazardous materials and substances and all of these things that are used um, and that uh, these things have um, you know, are, are, are big barriers for us to transition uh, because you don't know what the additives are. You don't know if how the plastic was exactly made. Uh, but if you would know that, so on the other hand, because you don't know it, this brings a massive um, pressure uh, on, the, on the environment because of the, all of these plastic pollution. But at the, on the other side, if you would know that and you could design a system where you can contain the plastics within the economy, plastics are actually one of the best if not the best material when it comes to like product specification uh, endurance uh, as well as so plastics are really a material that can be used for thousands of years the problem is that right now we don't we 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 we, we take a material that can be used for thousands of years and we use it for like 
sometimes a few seconds in a plastic bag or a few days. Um, so I think there is a lot of potential that we can unlock within within the plastics industry. Um, and obviously, this uh, initially we had quite a broad approach uh, with electronics, and obviously there's a lot of plastics being used in electronics as well. Um, but we also saw that uh, very other uh, companies and initiatives were focusing on this problem. I'm not sure why, uh, but we saw this, this you know window of opportunity basically and had some traction as well with some major suppliers. So that's how it came to be. Hi, this is Sasha Panamareva, and I work as a green operations specialist at the San Francisco International Airport. The airport is kind of its own little city. Um, it's a really wonderful place to work. Kind of, it's you have so many different professions there, all in one place. So we have our own, all our own shops. We have our own plumbers, our own carpenters, our own paint shop, our own sheet metal workers. Um, and then we also have our own finance staff and our own admin staff. So it's it's its own city, and um, and because of that, it kind of oftentimes makes it a little easier to get things done because anyone you could ever want or need to talk to is there on site. Um, and, of course, the business community there, so the restaurants and retailers, um, is are easily accessible and the airport kind of has jurisdiction in a really unique way. So um, I, I found it to be a really good place to try out programs and pilots, no pun intended, as we like to say, um, sample different things. And um, yeah, it's been a really great place to work and kind of its own little microcosm of a city. So our team is environmental operations, and we work really closely with another team called um, Sustainability and Environmental Policy. Um, so they're kind of on the admin policy side of things, and we're on like the sort of facilities boots on the ground operation side of things. And so we worked really, really closely with their team on um, the plastic bottle ban in the last the last summer. Um, the airport went plastic free for water bottles, and so all of our concessionaires have non-plastic bottled water options and so um, the admin and policy team, team did a lot of incredible work on um, researching you know with manufacturers of um, non-plastic options reaching out to tenants kind of running the policy through and we supported in doing a lot of the outreach to our tenants and um, kind of making sure they were on board and um, that it felt comfortable to them so I think that's of recent times that's been a really big achievement I think another thing that we that our team specifically focuses on is waste training. So last year we kind of did a huge um, effort to train all of our facility staff. So we have over a thousand facility staff. So that's those are all of the shops, like I was mentioning. Um, and so we went out and trained both day and night shifts for all of those shops on waste diversion. We helped set up all of their break rooms with um, waste infrastructure, got feedback from them on unique materials that they're always dealing with because, you know, an auto shop has different supplies that they're trying to get rid of than, an, you know, than a computer-based office. So it was a really, really great opportunity, I think, for us to not just 
you know, spread the <laughs> spread the waste gospel and talk about composting, recycling, but also to really connect with the different folks that work at the airport and the challenges that they face and kind of their perspectives on waste. And I think so we ended up training over a thousand staff and um, that was a really a great initiative. And I, I learned a lot during that. Hello, my name is Jasmine Lomax, and I am a sustainability manager at Kilroy Realty. When I first embarked on my sort of career path, I was pulled towards architecture. Um, And I was like, this is building. This is great. This is everything that I know since I live in the um, built environment. Turned out architecture wasn't quite right, um, that I really wanted to get down to like the nitty gritty of buildings and where everything, materials, resources, everything comes from, um, people power. And so um, I switched my focus to construction, construction management, everything relating to our built environment. And I think my calling really came from my subconscious. I like to build. I love to use my hands. I like to make an impact on the world. And then um, also being passionate about sustainability they happen to pair perfectly. And so whatever anyone is passionate about, especially sustainability, go for it. Jump in, take the deep dive, even if it's at a more like a smaller level, a micro level, just you should get into it. Because I didn't have a sustainability background specifically. It was just so deeply in my heart. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm, I'm so thrilled to be part of such a community that lends itself to such quality and like open-minded people. This is Shauna Rappaport, Executive Director of Verge with Green Biz Group. As the conversation about racial and social justice picks up, one less discussed aspect is food justice. That is how to ensure that all people, particularly those in lower income communities and communities of color, have access to nutritious, safe and affordable food. Here to talk about that is the one and only Stephen Ray, an internationally recognized teacher, best-selling author, and co-founder of The Green Bronx Machine. Welcome, Stephen. Thank you, Shanna. I only wish people could see the smile I have looking at your face during this podcast. But as I've always said, I've got the perfect face for radio. So let's do this. (laughs) Thank you, Stephen. So I want to start, as someone who's been working in the social justice field for, for decades now, How has this moment, particularly COVID-19 and the pandemic, changed your thinking about food justice, about what it means and and how to approach uh, enabling it in the communities in which you work? So I think, first and foremost, thank you for that question. As someone who's been an advocate for years, this moment has really helped to reshape my thinking around the notion of philanthropy and nonprofit work versus policy and change. Philanthropy will help us send lots of bottles of water to Michigan, and that is admirable. They need bottled water in Michigan. 
but policy and change will ensure that the damn pipes are fixed and anyone who violates the sanctity of clean water for those residents will be imprisoned. And that's the answer. So you're seeing a lot of us really stop talking about pie in the sky, philanthropy and band-aid approaches, but whole systemic change. And that's really what this is about, from a tipping point to a turning point and a lot more self-reliance, but fundamental changes in policy. You know, the things that nonprofit work, nonprofit organizations are doing, they should not be the exception. They should be the rule. And what we need to do is really focus on how we can embed those tools and that advocacy into the single greatest lever this nation has, public education. And, you know, shifting a little bit. So the last couple of weeks have been really significant in bringing more mainstream the conversation about the urgent need for social equity, the Black Lives Matter movement. How is that changing thing, uh, things on the ground in the communities in which you work? Is it, you know, maybe for those who are less familiar with the Green Bronx machine, you can paint a little bit of picture, bit of a picture about the work you're doing. But is, are you finding that it's easier to make progress? Harder is this moment opening doors? What are the impacts that you're experiencing on the ground? So I never limit my challenge. I always believe in challenging the limits. And certainly, let's talk about what the COVID crisis really is. The COVID crisis has really presented society with a very clear black and white x-ray as to where our priorities are and aren't. And literally, you know, with that, with that x-ray, we hold up to the light and it's very easy to see where our priorities are as a nation, as business, as civic leaders. You can't deny what is happening where. But the COVID crisis, is really emblematic and, and the symptom of three larger viruses that are at play in this society. One, systemic racism. Two, greed. And three, corruption. So when we root those things out and call light to what they are, where they exist, and how they impact the most vulnerable communities in America, therein lies the possibility for change. As for Green Bronze Machine, you know, we are swift, we are nimble, and we are agile. And I'm proud to say that our work shifted on the dime to first and foremost feeding our most our most vulnerable citizens and families. We have we are delivering food um, door to door to cancer patients who are tethered to oxygen machines 20 stories up in public housing. We are delivering food to 55 of the most vulnerable families across New York City. And let us not confuse the Green New Deal with the Screen New Deal. So in this age of distance and remote learning, that's great, but you can't eat a laptop. So we are going door to door, making sure that our children and our students and our families have access to healthy, fresh food. And that when we get online to Zoom cook and Zoom teach, that we have the ingredients we need so that every child can be seated around the table. So I'm infinitely proud of the work that we do, that we're doing on a grassroots level. We've been able to reach out to suppliers and supply chains and rescue food that would otherwise be going in the trash. Um, we've come up with creative campaigns that have helped generate employment for adults by uh, our sustainable t-shirt, our sustainable gangster t-shirt campaign, which is providing jobs. And also then the purchase provides a bag of groceries for a family in need. So I think those on the cutting edge will continue to innovate and iterate and lead by example, rooted in the simple mindset. No one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And it's my dream that this horrible crisis gets us closer to a kinder, compassionate, and more empathetic nation. 
if, if you had one wish right now, something that would be just a game changer for the work that you're doing with Green Bronx Machine, uh, for, for the, the work that you're doing in the communities in which you operate, what would that, what would that wish be? So Green Bronx Machine is aggressively and assertively seeking business partners to expand our reach and our grasp. And what that means is we have a history of elevating brands and partners to exponential financial returns. So I'm not asking for a handout. I'm asking for a handshake. People who are willing to work with me to embed their work, their mission, their vision, their product, their expertise into the work that we are doing across America and around the world. So what it means to partner with Green Bronx Machine is to be in 500 public schools touching 50,000 students a day, scaling to 500,000 in the next 18 months. What it means to partner with Green Bronx Machine, a top 10 health and wellness organization in America via the Harkin Institute, and a top 100 educational innovation in the world involves creating advocacy and opportunity rooted in equity for all. This yesterday, was it yesterday? Yesterday, we celebrated one of our graduates um, who came through the program, the first in her family to graduate high school, 27 college, full-ride college scholarships for pre-med, including Columbia, Penn State, Howard, and Spelman. That's it. That's what, it, you know, that's what partnering with Green Bronze Machine does. It gives you market share. It gives you employees. It gives you opportunity and gives you an, an ability to tell your story and embed your brand into one of the most successful grassroots organizations in the nation dedicated to public education, health outcomes, and building resilient communities. You've been working at the intersection of those twin goals for, for, for so long, and it feels now in this moment like we're coming to a new, even deeper place of understanding about their importance. So I urge for all of our listeners who have, have heard Stephen speak at our events before, who are familiar with Green Bronx Machine, and also those uh, for whom his work is new, I, I urge you to check it out. Stephen Ritz is the founder and executive director of the Green Bronx Machine. Thank you so much, Stephen. Always. Last week, Dow set targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, stop plastic waste, and drive toward a circular economy. Specifically, the company said it would achieve carbon neutrality by 2050. It said it would that 100% of its products would be sold in packaging applications that would be reusable or recyclable by 2035, and that it would enable a million metric tons of plastic to be collected reused and recycled by 2030. I was particularly interested in that last commitment, enabling a million metric tons of plastic uh, to be re re collected, reused, and recycled. That caught my eye, and I had a chance to talk about that with Jim Fitterling, Dow's chairman and CEO, in a recent interview. And here's what he had to say. One of the initiatives that we've been part of is, for example, the Alliance to End Plastic Waste. Uh, which is working on uh, waste management infrastructure and recycling uh, and, and being able to stop waste from going into oceans and into waterways. We've also been working with groups like Closed Loop Partners, uh, Circulate Capital, in terms of enabling projects that can allow that waste to be minimized. And we've also worked with World Economic Forum 
on their Global Plastics Action Partnership. So it's not uh, as indirect as it sounds. It's actually us working through other agencies to put projects in place where we can account for the amount of waste that has been stopped or, or, or kept from going out into the environment. And uh, we're also looking at things that we can do on reuse of plastics that would stop them from going not just into waterways, but stop them from going to landfills. Uh, so we're, we're looking at both of those scopes as part of that metric. You know, we, we believe, and I, and I think you and I have talked about this before, plastics are an important part of a circular economy and a low-carbon future because they do drive a lot of sustainability benefits in our world. The plastic waste issue, though, is one that has to be tackled. And so we've got to come up with ways to implement uh, projects, both recycling and infrastructure projects, that can stop that waste from being just one use and then out to a landfill or one use and then ending up in the environment. We need technologies for closing the loop. We need technologies that can take plastics and recycle them back to plastics again for mechanical recycling. We need technologies that can take them and recycle them back to a feedstock, so an advanced recycling technology. Uh, there are many applications today for uh, mechanical, mechanically recycled plastics, but there are some limitations in terms of use for mechanically recycled plastics. And going to advanced recycling allows you to take it back to more of a neat form of a feedstock and then plastics again. And that, that would allow you to get into applications, maybe like food packaging applications again. Uh, so we're looking at both of those. We're looking at uh, the use of material, different materials for production of plastics. So we're working with a company called UPM Biofuels, which actually takes a, a wood-derived product and makes a naphtha out of it and converts that into plastics. Uh, so we're looking at a lot of different technologies that go into it. Um, and then we're looking at technologies as well that touch the carbon part of the equation, the emissions part of the equation, like our uh, FCDH technology, which is in pilot stage right now. Uh, FCDH produces on-purpose propylene from propane, but it does so uh, at a 20% lower greenhouse gas emissions uh, than its next best available alternative. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty big step change in, in production of propylene, and propylene for polypropylene or polyurethanes is a widely used uh, raw material. If we can also extend that technology uh, into the production of ethylene, uh, then you've got the two biggest monomers in our industry, ethylene and propylene, we believe we can make ethylene with an almost a 40% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions. That's a very big change. So doing both of those things as well helps us on the plastics, but also on the greenhouse gas emissions side. And, and our view is, you know, plastics, low carbon economy, low greenhouse gas emissions go hand in hand. There's a symbiotic relationship. Plastics by their own nature make things lighter weight, they make things more energy efficient, they make cars lighter weight, more fuel efficient, even even more fuel efficient if they're electric vehicles. And then if you can get the reuse part of that into the equation, you've you know, created a, a big opportunity for a win on both the greenhouse gas and the circular economy part of the equation. 
Fitterling had a lot more to say about the company's climate commitments and the role of plastics in sustainability. We'll put a link to the entire 18-minute video interview on the page for this week's episode. This episode of Green Biz 350 is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com. And this episode is also sponsored by The Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving innovative solutions together. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish six of them every single week and you can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. And as always, send us your comments, questions, and tips. We always love to hear from you. Email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be off next week celebrating our and our nation's independence. We'll be back on July 10th with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Stay safe, and as always, thanks so much for tuning in. Green Biz 350.